If you're a note taker, I encourage you to grab something to take notes with. Uh, there are cards in the seat back pocket in front of you that you can grab with plenty of pens. Take as many notes as you want. Um, I would also encourage you to uh, reach out with the questions you have or the thoughts that you have based on the message uh, as you hear it. Because what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to be interacting with the church. There is a really important idea that I want you guys all to understand. I didn't come up with this. This is not my original idea, but it is an amazing idea. I would love to be uh, the pastor of a church of people who are not afraid of their Bibles, right? A pastor of a church of people who are not afraid of their Bibles. And what that means is not afraid of the challenging things that are posed to us when we start to read them and we start to interpret them. When we start to ask the questions of how did we get our Bible or what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired or any of these concepts. So I want to, uh, I want to see a group of people that are willing to uh, engage with their Bible, that are willing to jump in to the text of Scripture without any fear. The other thing that I think is very important is that as a pastor, I would hope that you would hear the, the challenging concepts that exist in the Bible or the challenging concepts that the world says about the Bible, I would hope that you would hear of those challenges from me and not hear them from uh, other sources so then you come back and you say, hey, what gives? Why didn't you ever tell me that this was complicated? The church is filled with pastors who basically stay in one lane and that lane is don't talk about hard stuff. Right? Don't talk about complicated stuff. Let's just talk about how to encourage each other to look more like Jesus. That's wonderful. Nothing wrong with pastors like that. But uh, the reality is, is that we're living in a skeptical culture, a, a day and age where people are doubting more than ever before, and we need to be equipped and ready to give actual answers for our faith. So a church that is not afraid of their Bibles and a church that hears of the complexities and the challenging issues that we face from its leadership leadership, not from the rest of the world. Because honestly, none of these things should catch you off guard. They shouldn't catch you by surprise. They should be things that you engage with uh, on a regular basis that hopefully you're able to teach your kids, the people in your house, whatever it is, friends and family. So that's kind of the disclaimer off the top, right? A church of people not afraid of their Bible. Amen? A church where they hear the challenging issues that we face, the skeptical issues, from the leadership so that they know we're already ready for it. We're prepared. We've, we're not surprised by any of these. Amen? Okay, awesome. So uh, the series that we're in right now is called Seven Things Every Christian Should Know About Their Bible. And last week, we learned about how the Bible came to be. So the first thing of what you need to know about your Bible is how the Bible came to be. Now, there's a lot involved in that. It's over an hour message, so please go back and listen to it. Um, uh, it's really important for us to get it right. There was not some sort of gold tablet dropped out of the sky, and we put it into a book, and we, uh, we buy copies of it at Barnes and Noble. That's not how you got your Bible, right? So there's, there's a lot to that. Uh, we looked at translation. We looked at canonicity or what it means to have a, a collection of books that we believe to be trustworthy and inspired. And briefly, we tackled the, uh, the concept of inspiration, which is where we're going to spend all of our time today, this idea of inspiration. So that said, the second thing that I want you to know about your Bible, and you can write this down as a note, is it's as simple as this. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspired. 
You can write that down. The Bible is inspired. It's as simple as that. It's as complicated as this. You may be surprised as to what inspiration means. You may be surprised as to the differing views on what inspiration actually looks like. So along with inspiration, we will, we'll discuss the claim of inerrancy or infallibility as we go, which is a, um, which is a uh, doctrine or an idea that has to be closely related to this. So uh, inspiration, the term is derived from a Latin term, which is pronounced inspirare, and it literally means to breathe into. We got our English Bible version, inspiration, from a Latin term. The Latin term is a best guess or a, uh, a hopeful interpretation of what an original Greek word was. But there is no direct one-to-one parallel for this. In Carl F.H. Henry's work, The Authority... <clears throat> and inspiration of the Bible, he says that in modern usage, the term inspiration unfortunately suggests an act of breathing into. Now, here's what he goes on to say. Moreover, it is used in secular society as a synonym for a wide variety of phenomenon, ranging from a hunch to artistic genius. We're going to come back to that later, so just remember that idea of a hunch with regard to inspiration or the, the idea of artistic genius. The apostolic emphasis is that God breathed out. So you see the distinction that he's making here, right? It's the difference between breathing into a text that was written by a bunch of people and the idea that God breathed it out and they wrote it down, okay? So this is where Carl F.H. Henry lands in his view of inspiration. He says the apostolic emphasis is that God breathed out what the sacred writers convey in the biblical writings, the emphasis falls on divine initiative and impartation rather than on human creativity. Scripture owes its origin, he says, and nature to what God breathed out. So you're collecting this breath of God, this spirit of God, and writing it down. In short, uh, Henry says, the Bible's life breath as a literary deposit, the whole of it, is divine. So where does this God-breathed idea come from? Whether it's, whether it's breathed into or breathed out, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Bible itself. Now, if you're going to deal with skeptics on these issues, they're going to ask the question, where did you get the idea that your Bible is inspired by God? And your answer is going to be, in the Bible. And they're going to say, so your Bible tells you that God inspired your Bible. Do you know what that's called in logic? Circular reasoning. Circular reasoning. You are not going to be able to get around this reality, okay? It is just a thing that you have to deal with, okay? So they're going to say that doesn't matter. You can say of yourself you're the greatest dad ever. Where did you get the information? I told myself that, right? It's, you see why it's circular reasoning. But we get the idea from insp inspired scripture. We get it from a text of scripture. The, the way I work around this, or not even work around this, the way I have great comfort in this idea is by looking at the Bible for what it actually is, which is something that is God-inspired but humanly composed. In that, I mean that Paul said to Timothy when he wrote to him, by the way, all of these ancient documents, all of these ancient manuscripts and, and scriptures, they are inspired by God and they are useful for a great many things. Now I'm breaking it out of 
just circular reasoning by saying there is a letter that Paul writes to a young man as he's guiding him and shaping him as a pastor. And he says to him, the sacred writings that you follow, that you've come, become convinced of, these things are breathed out by God. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to look at that. So where does it come from? It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 14. On the screen, you'll see verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says. You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. How many of you, uh, how many of you struggle in your Christian faith where you're like, well, I know so-and-so taught me a thing, but I'm not sure I'm convinced of it. How many of you say, I heard that from the pastor, but I'm not so sure it's true? Raise your hand. Big, loud, proud, right? It's okay. And Paul says the same thing to Timothy. And this was after, of course, he had become convinced. But remember, church, even with inspired scripture, we are growing to trust in these things. So he says, there are things that you learned and you became convinced of. Okay, very powerful. Knowing from whom you learned them. So there's a credibility factor in the person that you're learning from. I think that that's an important thing for us to remember. So uh, Timothy, who did Timothy learn from? His mother and his grandmother. That's pretty powerful. And then he also learned things from the Apostle Paul. So who taught him mattered. And, sorry, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that lead to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the purpose of the inspired scripture is? Paul states it right here. It's actually able to give you wisdom. It does give you wisdom, but it's only able to give you wisdom if you'll actually heed it. Do you understand the difference there? The dictionary is able to give you definitions of words, but if you don't crack it open, you're not going to know it. Okay? So it's able to give you uh, wisdom, and that wisdom leads to salvation through what? Faith, right? Which is in Christ Jesus. There is one way, amen? One way to the Father. So we have faith, which is in Christ Jesus, and then we get to our famous passage, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. The word there is theonusto, and we'll talk about it in just a second. Uh, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Purpose number two. Purpose number one, able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Purpose number two, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that, end game, that a man or a woman of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. How many of you want to be equipped for every good work? How many of you know that the scripture can teach you to be that? How many of you know that that means you have to submit to the people that are teaching you that because they're supposed to be helping you and guiding you? It's amazing how that works, right? So the word translated by the phrase inspired by God, that phrase is actually only one word. It is theonustos, okay? Uh, It might be pronounced theopnustos, but I'm no Greek scholar here. So, which only occurs, by the way, this word, only occurs one time in the New Testament, and it's right here in this verse. Well, that helps us out a lot. We have nothing to compare it to, right? Its precise nuance is then unknown. 
you can go home now and know that you don't know what it means. There you go. Okay. I'm going to explain a little bit better, though. So, uh, it is possible that this is a compound word. Paul is famous for creating his own words inside of the Greek. And so, it could be the combination of theo, which is God, and noustos, which means breath or spirit. That could mean either God breathed or God spirited, as if that would be a verb. So, uh, it could, could mean either one of those. Uh, based on other compound words in the New Testament, such as theodidaktos, uh, which means taught by God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, we could translate that word, too, as inspired by God. The point is uh, that the breath or the Spirit of God is the source of Scripture. And the breath and the Spirit of God, according to Scripture, is both the words of Scripture and the fact that it is taught to you. That's a really interesting challenge for us, and we'll get deeper in that today. Of course, when Paul wrote these words, he was most likely referring only to the Old Testament, but he could have had in mind certain scriptures, certain letters that had already been circulating that would later become the New Testament canon. So before we dive into uh, what God breathed and inspiration uh, mean especially, um, and before we jump down the, on the train that that means God dictates everything or the train of what is called verbal plenary inspiration, I want you to understand that the early church fathers used theonoustos to refer to non-canonical things as well. So here's a term that is created by Paul. It's used in one instance in the entire New Testament, but the early church fathers used that term too, and they used it for things other than the scripture. The council of Ephesus, uh, when, they, when they condemned Nestorius, they referred to their decision as their inspired, Theonustos, decision. So to condemn this person was an inspired decision. Inspired by whom? God. That's the implication, right? Uh, the inscription over Abersius' tomb is called an inspired inscription, the Theonustos epigramma. Right? So an inspired inscription? Inspired by who? God, right? That's the point. Similarly, Gregory of Nyssa says his brother Basil's commentary on the scriptures is inspired Theonusto uh, exposition. So now you have the Bible, which is God-breathed, and you have a verdict on a man's judgment. You have a commentary in the early church fathers that is Theonustos, and you have other things, the 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 inscription over a man's uh, grave. Like, this is fascinating how this works, but this same term is used. The concept of something being inspired by God was not limited to the canon of Scripture. In the early church, this was, again, expanded way beyond uh, just what we read. The writings that would become canonical actually had to meet a lot of criteria. And here is a couple of those criteria. Uh, the writings needed to be used regularly for teaching or reading in churches throughout the known world. Okay? So there was a regular usage of this. Again, Constantine doesn't just come up, uh, become a Christian, and make a Bible. That is a popular, skeptic, misnomer. It is not true. That is not how the Bible came to be. They needed, uh, the second qualification is that they needed, the text needed to have had a connection with the apostles at either through being written by them or it was uh, penned by one of their scribes. 
I told you this last week, the Apostle Paul in Romans, it says that Paul is the one talking, and at the end of Romans, it says that somebody else wrote it. You see what's going on here? There's always a scribe. There's always somebody working inside of this, uh, this job. We see the same thing in Jeremiah with Barak and other places all throughout Scripture. The final consideration for an, for an acceptance of a book into canon was whether or not it agreed with the teachings passed down by the apostles. So, did this contradict? Was this in line with what was communicated? That's the question. And if the answer is yes to those and other things, the answer was that they were regularly used and we have this as a canon. Beginning with both Philo and Josephus, we find belief that the Jewish scriptures, so this is the Old Testament as we call it in Christian language, the the Jewish scriptures themselves had been inspired by God. Philo says this in Life of Moses and Josephus says this in his book Antiquities. Why is that important? Because yet again, extra-biblical sources are vital in our understanding of what is happening in life. We know what the culture believed and what they thought based on what they wrote. People uh, 2,000 years from now are going to know the same thing about the things that we thought based on what we write or maybe based on our YouTube videos, whatever it is. Christians, Christians accepted the belief that the Spirit spoke through the Scriptures both in the prophetic tradition and elsewhere. So it was all through prophetic things and through more, more than just prophetic things. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is so amazing. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So right away, notice this. The prophecy itself is not a matter of one person's, of, of a man's interpretation. But the Bible itself goes further. Look at the next line. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So it is not only the making of the prophecy, it's also the interpretation of the prophecy that are both considered inspired by God. Okay? This is going to really mess with some people here in a second because the way the early church saw things and the way the Jewish people saw things were not just that the scriptures themselves had God's breath on them, but that the people interpreting them were doing so rightly. That's a very big deal. Uh, This is what has led, or this is what led, to the Roman Catholic doctrine that the Pope is inerrant. And that the Pope can speak ex cathedra from the chair and can say true things that aren't to be contradicted. Don't think for a second that the Catholics made this crap up. It didn't happen. It happened way, way before that time. In both the biblical and non-biblical worlds, prophetic or ecstatic utterances were seen as the result of the Spirit's activity. The Spirit of God is moving on people, even in a non-biblical worldview or setting. For example, Balaam, the Babylonian diviner, he proclaims his oracles in the book of Numbers 24, 2 and 3. He says this, or it says this of him before he proclaims his oracle. The Spirit of God came upon him. He's a pagan. That's pretty cool, isn't it? right? God is doing something. Do you think that what Balaam said was inspired? You better. You better. Because whether you like the fact that it was spoken through Balaam or not, it still landed in your Bible, and you believe that to be inspired. 
Interesting, isn't that? So, uh, we have Balaam speaking. Philo frequently expresses the Jewish claim that all the prophets and Moses most of all were inspired by the Spirit of God. This is found in Life of Moses 1 and 2. The post-exilic Jews or the Jews that came after the exile or that were uh, after the, you know, outside of the exile, um, they believed that prophetic inspiration had ceased. This is another view inside of the church today, that certain things had ceased. Later, though, they didn't just say prophetic utterance and inspiration had ceased. They went further and said that the rabbis had spiritual uh, uh, inspiration and could teach on these matters. So this is really interesting. Sit down prophets and come up all of you rabbis. Again, uh, combination of words spoken and how they're interpreted is what gives us our ideas here, right? So it's not just inspired text, but it's inspired teaching. This actually makes sense of Jesus's reprimand in the book of Matthew. Uh, He reprimands the teachers of his day when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a quote from Leviticus 19. How many of you know that? Love your, love your neighbor, uh, but love your neighbor is all that's found in Leviticus 19. Hate your enemy was not something God said. It was let God be the one who brings justice, right? Let God be the one who, who judges. However, right, however, the rabbinic teachers suggested that you should hate your enemies. And why did the, why did the people adopt it? Because their words were inspired. They viewed it as inspired. Trust what they say. They still trust these rabbinic texts to this day, guys. So this is like, it'd be like us going, you know what, there's been a ton of authors in the Christian church, and we're going to just pull out a book off of a bookshelf, and we're going to say that's also an inspired commentary too. These people believed these people to have inspired commentary on these things. Early Christian traditions saw the outpouring of the Spirit in the whole community as a fulfillment of the promise of the end times. This was recorded in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Moreover, this spirit-inspired activity and speech extended extended to to a whole host of um, pastoral jobs or pastoral ministries. I'm going to have you look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. I apologize for all the drinking. 1 Corinthians 12 Verses 4 through 7. Look at this. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Do you think for a second that the words on a page of a Bible are inspired by God, but the actions of His people that are motivated by Him are not inspired by God? See, it requires you thinking about inspiration, not the way your tradition taught you. You have to take a deep breath when it comes to inspiration. You have to look at this and say, if, if men and, and women, but let's say, let's just use Peter's words, if men were moved about by the Spirit to communicate a prophecy, that movement was inspired. And so was the prophecy written down, and so is the interpretation of it. Isn't that amazing? So these are all Spirit-inspired ideas. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And you know what I love about Corinthians? Although the Bible is not written to me, although the Bible is is definitely written for me, 
It was written, this passage was written to the Corinthians, who were not apostles, and they were told, you are going to have gifts. And those gifts are operated by the Spirit, and by the way, that is a manifestation of God in inspiration. It's just a beautiful truth. From the patristic period, this is a fancy word that just means early Christian theologians, uh, from that period onward, Christians have sought to define precisely how and in what manner the inspiration of Scripture occurs. And this is the focus today. This is what we're getting nitpicky on. Uh, by the middle of the second century, the Christian scriptures were considered by Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen to be equally inspired along with the Jewish biblical texts. I told you this last week, and it's really important for you to know, there was no council that decided on the biblical canon. There was no council. There is a series of books that were held for a long time, and most of the ones that we have in our Old Testament canon, we actually take from a list given to us by Josephus, a historian. It's really cool stuff to know, and it shouldn't worry you. I just want you to understand it worked different for different people. So by the time the second century comes, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all believe these scriptures to be equal with the Jewish biblical texts. Various patristic analogies and metaphors were employed to explain the process of inspiration. Now you remember that passage from Carl F.H. Henry that I just mentioned where he said it was like an artist or something like this? And he said, this is a modern idea. And what that then leads to is people say this modern idea is also known as limited inspiration, which is just an ad hominem attack for people uh, not liking your view of inspiration. So what, what Carl F.H. Henry says was held all the way back in the second century. The, the first patristic fathers, the patristics, they believed in inspiration and used analogies and metaphors such as playing a musical instrument, as that God was the muse and it came through you, or the giving of dictation. And those two battles are the ones that rage today. Is it that God is playing a musical instrument that is a person, or is it that God gave you an exact wording, a dictation, and you wrote it down verbatim? Well, we're going to see problems in some of these ideas as we move forward. The human author in this second century period was seen as the instrument of the voice of God which had to be modulated uh, or intoned by the, by the God of the universe and used according to the instrument's limits. So, why did Paul write the way Paul wrote? That's the instrument God used. Why did Peter write the way Peter wrote? Because that's the instrument God used. Why do we have four accounts of the Gospels? Why do we need them? Apart from modern skepticism that says we want more uh, eyewitness testimony in order to believe something, why do we need four accounts? If God could write it down word for word and that was sacred and that was inspired, why would we need more than one account? We shouldn't need it. But what God does is he works through his instruments and he works through their uniqueness and their creativity, I would argue. The scholastics or the scholars claimed that concerning the literal and verbal inspiration of Scripture, it gradually gave way, uh, this is what gradually gives way to what people wrongly call limited inspiration, which was understood to mean divine, divine assistance to avoid errors. Okay, So what does it mean for God to inspire the text of Scripture? 
according to this view, it is that he simply assists his writers in the concepts and ideas that they're communicating, and he helps them to avoid errors. Even in this, there's an important question that you have to ask. Do we mean the errors of the specific text, or do we mean the errors of the ideas communicated? Do you know the difference in what I'm talking about? There's a difference in God saying, I want you to say these words. God so loved the world. And I want you to communicate the idea that I love the world. If God inspired that he loved the world, you could say, listen, (laughs) I know this is going to shock you, but the God who made heaven and earth, he actually loves you. And you've said the same thing. And it's an inspired truth that is there, okay? The other one says it has to be the exact words. Let me just pick on that view for just a second. If it has to be those exact words, for God so loved the world, the problem is we can't even get to English from Greek that way. So God was obviously not smart enough to think about the transition between languages. That's just dumb, right? That's just dumb. The other, thing that we have to, the other thing that we have to worry about is that there is no space or need in all of Christianity for what is called a thought-for-thought translation because you're doing it wrong. You can't do thought-for-thought because each word matters. So you need a literal word-for-word translation. How many of you know that there are Bibles that try this? And how many of you know that even those Bibles can't do it? It's, it's not possible. We can't do it. There are words that don't translate. In Greek, there's eros, and there's, and there's agape, and there's phileo, and there's storg. And Americans, we go, love. <laughs> really? That's it? That's what we're going to do? And then we need a whole sentences to explain what the Greek words mean. So now the Bible's like 40 times bigger than it used to be, right? So we have to ask the question, what would it mean to prevent errors? Does it mean the text, or does it mean the ideas communicated? Theories of biblical inerrancy remain firm in many fundamentalist and evangelical traditions. Contemporary hermeneutics, that's the interpretive methods, however, wrestle with socio-historical issues of biblical traditions and how to accommodate a theory of inspiration within such a framework. How many of you know that there were things that went without being said back in the day? And they require a lot of explanation today. And the Bible knew it, which is why it said you must rightly divide it doesn't need rightly divided if it's perfect, if it's said exactly the way it needs to be said. It doesn't need your help. It itself understands the changes that are coming in life. God sees all of these things, church. Literary critical theory and textual criticism, furthermore, recognize that not just the writing of the text, but also the reading and interpretation of the text are performed within the context of the Spirit-inspired faith community. Such a view requires a much broader and more nuanced theory of inspiration. And that view has not been fully formulated in the church today. This is why the argument still goes on. What are we asking, church? What does it mean for the Bible to be God-breathed? What does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? Why does this question matter? Because when you start to get to the skeptical challenges of the Bible, you are either going to panic and believe God is a liar... Or you are going to see through a right view of inspiration that does not do anything but make you marvel at the God of the universe.
Trust me. I'm going to share some of those with you. I was asked this week uh, by somebody, he said, he said uh, what are you going to do when everybody that you're teaching gets, uh, gets educated on these things and then they hold different positions than you? And I said, I am going to enjoy debating, <laughs> right? I'm going to enjoy having these discussions on this level. That makes me happy to debate these issues and to talk about these issues. It should make you happy as well because you're joining the ranks of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of others who have done the same thing for millennia. Guys, we, we don't have it all solved. We don't have it all figured out. I'll, I'll point that out in a little bit more clarity here in a second. So how many views really are there, Nathan? Like, come on, there can't be a lot of views of in- inspiration. Let me list six of them. <laughs> I think it's six. It might be more. Number one, inspiration as artistic ability. There's entire groups of people that believe that uh, there's feelings of religious fervor, meditation on God, basking in God's creation, and all of that leads to a, verbalize, uh, to a verbalized experience of what God was saying to them. So this is the artistic rendering. It's like um, you went out and you saw a sunset and you wrote a song about it, right? And so this is one view of inspiration of the text of Scripture by scholars. Number two, inspiration as divine endorsement. Others conceive of inspiration as God's validation of a written text. So it was written, and then he validates it. That is to say that Hosea and James composed their respective works, and basically their own ideas were written down, and then God simply put a heavenly stamp of approval on it. Okay, That's the, theor- the second theory of inspiration. Um, I think you can see a lot of challenges with that particular view, but this is why Carl F.H. Henry wants to correct the Latin. And that is that it's God breathed out something versus God breathed into something. What he believes God breathed into something means is James wrote it, and then God said, I approve. But he wants to change it. It's fine. He wants to say, God breathed this out, which means everything James knew and thought and heard, he would have written down because God said so. The next one, the third one, is in inspiration as divine dictation. In divine dictation, God speaks into the mind of somebody like Obadiah or Luke, who in turn write word for word what they hear. And I've already explained to you why there's a challenge with this approach. There is no way we get to English translations. We can't get there. And you don't need the NIV. You don't need, well, most people don't think you need the NIV anyway. But you don't need modern translations that are thought for thought translations, right? So you can't get there. Because why? Because if you're going to be serious about inspiration and every word matters, I don't need you to just summarize the thought. I need you to tell me the word he used. Do you understand the point? Like that is the idea of verbal plenary inspiration. That's inspiration as divine enablement with words. This is dictation theory light, right? The most, but it's the most prevalent account of biblical inspiration, especially among, among evangelical theologians. This is another thing that is worth thinking about. Um, if you get outside of your own bubble, you'll realize people hold very different views from you. And they hold them just as strictly as you hold yours. And when you see that, to me, it gives me peace. I go, oh, okay. We're just people trying to figure this whole thing out, right? 
So uh, this is inspiration among evangelical theologians called plenary verbal inspiration. On this view, inspiration pertains to God's work to guide the minds and personalities of the human authors. So he's behind the scenes still making them choose or, or enabling them to write in their own words the intended meaning of what God had revealed to them. This is why modern scholars, many scholars, just call that dictation theory light. The next one, inspiration as the incarnation of divine ideas in human words. Now, I've shared this with you just last week. It is a very strong theory, but I don't believe it's fully uh, defensible. Um, Inspiration as incarnation, something similar to Jesus' incarnation, a union of divine and human elements. On, On this view, Scripture is where God's Word takes on the flesh of human language so that the Bible is fully divine, yet at the same time, it's fully human. You guys kind of see the, the imagination that's uh, involved in creating that theory. The last one is inspiration as conceptual guidance. And this is one of the strongest of the theories, if not the strongest. God's guiding and leading human minds at the conceptual level, not at the linguistic level, but at the thought level. That is general notions, broad ideas, and building blocks for both words and sentences. So it has something to do with that. And why would you add that into that definition of inspiration? Because there are many places in the scripture where it says, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And guess what follows? What God said. Now, is that exactly what he said in Hebrew or exactly what he said in Greek? That's another question based on our translation. But if we go back to the original manuscripts or what we have, we can talk about that. So what do we do with all this? How many of you go, this is hopeless, Nathan? I'm serious. Be, be honest with me. You're like, oh my gosh, forget this. Okay, not many. This is good. That makes me happy. We remember that the scripture is inspired. Amen? And what that means is something that we need to discuss with both charity and civility all the days of our life. We need to have charity with each other and civility when it comes to how this thing came about. So side note, here's, here's something that I want to show you. It's a, it's a graph up here. This is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this represents very well most of the theological conversations I get myself into. Okay? On this axis, we have competence or confidence in a particular view. Confidence in a particular view. On this axis, we have knowledge in a field. That would be competence. Okay? Confidence and competence. And here's what happens to just about everybody in the world. We start from, huh? To, I know everything. How many of you know you do that? You absolutely do that. You absolutely do that. You go out, you did this when you were in school, you did this when you were preparing to write a, an exa- or a, a test paper or something. You went out, you searched Google, you found the one thing, the first thing that came up, and you said, gospel truth. And you wrote it down like it was the only stupid idea out there. And then your teacher goes, that was page two on Google, dude. I saw where you got it, right? So you go from huh to I know everything. And then all of a sudden, Christian maturity sets in. And this is where, this is where I want people to go, okay? I'm not saying we automatically go down Christian mature paths. There's more to this than I thought. How many of you are now in this series and going, whoa, there's way more to this than I thought? Don't stop, please. We're only at step two. Step three, I'm never going to understand this. How many of you entered that this morning? 
<laughs> right on. Lance is like, holy cow, when I stepped in the door, I felt that way. Okay, next one. It's starting to make sense. And listen, the last is not, now I do know everything. The last is, trust me, it's complicated. Nobody in the church walks around with that level of humility, sadly. Nobody seems to walk around with, trust me, it's complicated. We go, how dare you? I'll find a church that already says yes to what I believe. How many of you know that? Come on. This is the challenge with the church today. And so what we do if we don't have charity and civility is we live by confirmation bias. How many of you can say, I am biased? Actually, I don't even care. I want you to repeat after me. I am biased. It's a fact you are. And here's what you do when you don't, when you don't want to shake your bias. You confirm it. So you go on Google and you search, this is my idea and I want a proof for my idea. And you walk away going, see, told you I was, I was smart. No, you just confirmed your own idea. That's all you did. Confirmation bias. We do this in theological circles too. What's inspiration mean to you? It means this. Who said it? John MacArthur. Done. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? Great guy. Who cares? You need to think and study through the ideas that are presented to you. And you need to know your bias and you need to try to fight against it. This brings up, uh, albeit briefly, the idea of inerrancy or infallibility. Here's what Michael F. Byrd says about inerrancy and infallibility. Many theologians claim that if the Bible is inspired, in whatever way that is, then it must also be inerrant, that is, without error. But what does it mean to say that the Bible is without error? Is this even true? You guys all know that the Bible doesn't actually say the word trinity. You know that, right? But we know the doctrine of the trinity. The Bible doesn't say that things are inerrant, but we believe that as Christians, okay? So, but the question still remains, what in the world does that mean, right? What does it mean to be without error? Is it even true? If so, does it mean that the Bible is true and accurate in every detail, even in historical and scientific aspects? No. Right? Is it mean that the Bible's truthfulness only extends to the subject of its religious and ethical claims? Do you know that the Bible can, you can use the Bible to defend quite clearly and well that the earth is flat, right? You know that, right? Don't, don't think you're special because you're a globalist, right? Because you see it differently. It was not viewed that way before. It talks about the four corners of the earth. It talks about being held up by pillars. Do, does that mean literally? You know that doesn't mean literally, right? You know that there's figurative language. So what does it mean that the Bible is without error? For those struggling with this and what I'm saying, I want you to see the scriptures themselves uh, that make this whole debate possible. First would be the ideas of uh, editorial processes in the Bible. And we see this uh, all over the scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 34 verses 1 through 12 and a specific emphasis on verse 6. I mentioned this last week. Uh, there are many scholars, many pastors, many teachers who will absolutely fight you to the death over the idea that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. The problem is Deuteronomy 34 verse 6 recounts Moses' death. It's really hard to do 
to write, you're death, right? It's hard to write that down because you're dead, okay? So it did not occur to these people that he did not write this down. But I got way more evidence for messing with your mind for this. Genesis 14, 14. Notice uh, in Genesis 14, 14, there's a reference to the tribe of Dan, okay? There's a reference to the tribe of Dan. This is really awesome. The reference to Dan in this verse, Dan was one of the tribes of Israel. So what's the problem? The tribe of Dan didn't exist in the time frame of Genesis 14. Was nowhere in existence, right? That's the period of Abraham. Now, one could suppose that Moses, who was a contemporary of the tribe of Dan, when he wrote Genesis 14 during his own lifetime, is the one who put that in there. That would take care of the problem if the Bible itself didn't deny that Moses wrote it. Judges chapter 18 verse 29 tells us that, and they, after Moses is gone, the very Israelites living in the day, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. The only coherent way to view this is that Moses wrote Laish originally, because that's what the town was called in Genesis 14, 14. And the place name was later changed by an unnamed editor to Dan so that people would know what place he was referring to. So if this is inspired, which it is, one concludes that inspiration means divine dictation or verbal plenary inspiration. Well, why the change? Why did that change? In Abraham's day, Dan, was, he wasn't, he wasn't a future teller. He didn't call out Dan in, in this time. He didn't. It did not happen. It was Laish. So why is it Dan in the final text? Because there's editors and revisions. Why revise things? Doesn't that mean the individual text is errant? And it doesn't matter when it's errant. It would be errant at some point. Right? Imagine this. Dan. You're living in the town of Dan. It's a boring name. Sorry to anybody named Dan. Anyway, so you're in the town of Dan, and you're like, well, you guys want to change the name of the town to Dan from Laish? Okay, we'll change the name. But the Bible says Laish. Did God screw up? Nobody had that discussion or that argument, right? It was edited over time. Number three, the use of the phrase unto this day. How many of you have seen this in the Bible? And it is this way unto this day. A good example of this is Deuteronomy 10.8. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Now you're like, big deal. Nathan, that's not a big deal. Again, if Moses wrote this, the rule was instituted in the law. It would have been written. It makes little sense for Moses to say, this was the rule unto this day. Think about Moses standing in front of these people and saying, unto this day, Moses. No kidding. You're still standing here. You're, you're the one telling us this whole idea. It seems clear that a later editor wanted readers to know that you should continue to observe this idea. What about inspiration? Can God not finish his thought? These are questions and challenges that people wrestle with. Why should you rest in the fact that this doesn't bother or shouldn't bother you? Because God never said he was writing every period to you. I know we have a phrase, every dot and tittle, but you need to know what it means. Right? It goes without saying to them, and to us it means 
somehow there's extra grammar in Greek that wasn't there or whatever. Right? We, we're, we're not reading this rightly. Ezekiel 1, 1 through 3. Pay close attention to uh, the bold-faced items. I'm, I'm going to I think I might have put them up there. Did I put them up there? In the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as, what are we reading? Ezekiel. I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal. The heavens were opened. And, guess what it says? I saw visions of God. Now that's verse 1. Here's whopping verse 2. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to me? No, Ezekiel the priest. So all of a sudden we're going to switch to third person. Ezekiel just likes to talk about himself this way, right? The son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans near the Chabar Canal. And the, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is two verses that go from first person to third person. What's the explanation? A later editor. What's the problem? Verbal plenary inspiration or word for word dictation would not make sense. It does not make sense. Why is it not there? Why doesn't God just give it all when it's there? Ezekiel was there. You can record that thought. You don't need it later. Right? Do you understand the arguments here? So these, these are really big things to a lot of people. Okay? These verses read as though a scribe has taken some first-person material written by Ezekiel and then added a few lines, being careful not to put himself into the role of Ezekiel, to tell us what happened to Ezekiel. This sort of thing happens a lot in the Scripture, and it is a clear sign of editorial hands. Does this mess up the idea of inspiration? No, it doesn't, unless you only have one view of inspiration. Does this, uh, does, this, uh, does this unsettle your view of inspiration? Well, if it's wrong, it should unsettle it. I want you to think harder about this. But it doesn't mess up anything that is to be understood in a correct manner. Here's my favorite one. Last drink of water. Too much caffeine this morning. Oh, what is that going? Okay, Psalm 7220. This psalm reads, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is where you're going to deal with error. This is where you're going to deal with a problem, okay? The concept is what? The concept is what? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are done, right? That seems to make sense, really? <laughs> Why then do we have a number of prayers of David after Psalm 7220? Is this an error? The answer is no, if you have a right view of or inspiration. It's an editorial comment by whoever put the books of the Psalms together. When he finished book two, by the way, Psalm 73 begins book three of the Psalms, the compiler thought that they had collected all of them. More were found later and put into a larger book. A verse like this, innocuous as it might seem, can be real trouble for the dictation but not dictation theory. If God is the only source of the words of Scripture... He's the only one, then you'd think he would have known that the prayers of David were not at an end. You'd think that. But it wasn't that way. It was a guy who said, this is all we have. And then later, there was more. Do you understand that? The Bible has been built this way since the beginning, guys. 
We accepted most likely something like Mark's gospel first, and then other accounts were derived. Does that mean God can't add to? Does that God mean God can't change, edit, and work through things and still be inspired? Of course he can do that. There are way more differences, guys. There's differences in the numbers between Kings and Chronicles. There's differences in the ages of people in Genesis' genealogy. There's all kinds of figures in Matthew that are, that are interesting uh, figures to study. There are problems with literalism and, and, and non-literalism, right? There's all these different things. When it comes across, when we come across something that doesn't line up with our view of Scripture, we shouldn't be in the first stage of Dunning-Kruger. I know everything and just forget you, right? Because here's what's going to happen. The skeptic in your house is going to chew you up and spit you out. And then you're going to say, you're going to make up, listen to me very clearly, you're going to make up some over-spiritual defense and you're going to say your heart's hard. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have ears to hear. No, you don't argue well. Smile. I need you to smile at me. You got to learn to argue these things well you got to learn that this is way more complicated than you think. you got to learn that conversations are okay. And debates about these matters are all right. And we need to have them and will have them till the end of time. Right? Don't immediately go to the defensive. It might be your view of Scripture that needs to be brought in line with the facts. Okay? So we need to let Scripture inform us. So week one, the first thing you need to know about your Bible is how your Bible came to be. There's an entire sermon about it. Week two, you need to know that your Bible is inspired, but it's far more complicated than you think. Okay? Two quotes to end our day today. C.S. Lewis, in the preface to Paradise Lost, said this. He said, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship, from a corkscrew to a cathedral, is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. Did you hear that? This is huge, because this is talking about your Bible, too. What you need to do is know what it was intended to do, how it was meant to be used, right? Understand everything about it. The first thing is to understand the object before you, as long as you think a corkscrew was meant for opening cans... How many of you know that's not the case? <laughs> okay, just, just making sure. I mean, sometimes it works, but, right? Corkscrew was not meant for opening cans, and a cathedral was not meant for entertaining tourists. As long as you know this, or as long as you don't know this, you can say nothing about their purpose. You have to know what the Bible is, what the Bible claims, why it claims it, what its purpose is, all those things, in order for this to make any sense. Michael F. Bird says this, a high view of Scripture should embrace both the Holy Spirit's inspiration of authors as well as the Holy Spirit's sanctification of creaturely processes, including guidance of the collection. You know what the collection is called again? Canon. You know what your right response to somebody who says, do you believe in the canon of Scripture? Your right response is, which one? If you think there's only a Catholic canon and a Protestant canon, you need to do more homework, okay? There's a lot. And why did we settle on those things? Our tradition. There's nothing in the Bible that gives us a list of Bible books to put down. Our tradition. So please hear me, right? So the Holy Spirit's inspiration is sanctification of creaturely processes, including guidance of the collection, 
editing, which I've proven, and canonization of ancient texts. What is consistent in God's teaching, which gave us Holy Scripture? Why does this matter? I'm going to keep coming back to this at the end of every message. Why does this matter? Because when we keep using the Bible for wrong purposes, i.e. it's a science book, i.e. it is all a history book, it's not even all a history book. Uh, When we use uh, revelatory writings or things that are meant for, uh, for talking about the end times and all this stuff, if we read it like they're instructions to a church right here for a specific purpose, we are going to get our lesson so far off And the secular world is going to sit there and mock us until we have nothing left. Because what are we doing? Exactly what C.S. Lewis warned us not to do with a cathedral or a corkscrew. Don't use it for a purpose it wasn't intended to be used for. Use it for its right purpose. And when you do, you will see the Bible the way I see the Bible. As the greatest book that has ever been given. It is phenomenal because at every doubt and every question and at every concern, God is in there answering the problems. God is working through his people to defend and fight and argue about these things and reason with the world for truth. Guys, the Bible is absolutely glorious. Highest view of a book that I can have, guys. It is God-breathed. But that means something. And we need to think deeply about what that means. My last illustration, it was going to be that quote, but my last point is this, or illustration is this. We can prove this in the most definitive way when we think about the Proverbs. Jacob Dolezal gave his devotion this morning on one of the Proverbs. The proverb that says, train up your child in the way they should go, and in the end they won't depart. And Jacob did a masterful job. So apart from him making up words, he did a masterful job, right? But so Jacob did a masterful job at his presentation this morning, at his message this morning. And he shows very clearly that the Proverbs themselves, although spoken in what sounds like a promise, train your child, Roger, in the way they should go. And in the end, they will not leave. And the Bible itself records the prodigal son story. Of a father who did train his child in the way they should go. And I've told you this a thousand times. If bad kids automatically meant bad parents, you've just called God bad. Because he raised us exactly right. He gave us all the instruction we needed. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it would mean that it's a giant contradiction and a lie. How is it still inspired and true? When you use it rightly. It is not to be used as a promise, guys. It is used as a a statement of general truth that says your kids will definitely walk off the edge of a cliff if you don't warn them about it. Right? Amen? You guys are like, can we find some cliffs nearby? (laughs) So you have to use it rightly. You have to use it for what it was intended for, for corkscrew cathedral. Do the right thing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So, Next week, we're going to move further into this, and I encourage you, continue to show up, continue to know that you're going to school every Sunday with this, and continue to work with me. Talk to me about these issues, because these are big issues, and we have to set the church up to be able to defend against, as we learned two weeks ago, what, is, what seems like a great apostasy in America.
a great turning away of the faith. Amen.